Welcome back to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. Today, our guest is Matt T, co-chair of DSA's Southside Chicago chapter. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with over 70,000 members, including three members in the current Congress. In 2016 and 2020, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders ran as a Democratic Socialist on the Democratic ticket, leading to a surge in membership. Formed in 1982, DSA is a multi-tendency socialist organization which believes that both the economy and society should be run democratically to meet public needs, not to make profits for a few. With 81 local chapters across the country, DSA's tactics and organizing methods vary greatly in each community. This episode is the first installment of Planting the Seed, a mini-series in which I talk to members and chairs of DSA in order to provide an aerial view of the organization's undertaking of building economic and social democracy in America. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates. All right, here's Matt T. Enjoy. All right, so we're recording this on October 1st, uh, which is my birthday, but more importantly, though, uh, we're two days out from the presidential debate. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't want to spend too much time talking about it, Matt, because we got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, but yeah, man, what, what, what a shit show. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the debate? <laughs> yeah, shit show is, is pretty accurate. I was streaming with a good comrade and friend Kenzo uh on the class time stream on a switch stream and it was uh fun to watch it in real time and like bullshit about it because you just you're breaking it down and it, it it's exactly what Biden wanted right like it's exactly what he wanted he's like no I can be the other locker room bully to this locker room bully exactly but I'm gonna stand up for the little guy you know like I'm the one who's gonna protect the nerd in the corner and um it's you know it it kind of I haven't heard anybody say who won or lost really like no no overwhelming like wave of journalists have come out and said Biden did incredible Trump did it was just kind of like a moot point yeah because you know Trump's not going to back down Biden's not going to back down so they 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 know how to just like punch each other in the face yeah like just enough yeah I mean I, I, what I found interesting too was just like even when Biden tried to uh play like a counter bully to trump mm-hmm. right like he called him a clown like accidentally quote unquote called him a clown and then reneged on it and was like oh you know i'm sorry and it's just like dude he's been insulting you for the past hour like you can you can kind of unleash right like i've heard people say that probably the most effective way to counter trump debate him is to just like insult him mm-hmm. and like be as mean as he is and i don't know if that would have really worked because Trump doesn't have any shame, but yeah. Bernie might have been um might have been a match, you know, you know? Yeah, I, I think I don't know. I, I I don't really care about the like I think Bernie would have been winning. I think Bernie would have been like doing a lot better. Like I I do believe that, but I, I don't know, like, you know, that meme of Wolverine like stroking the picture frame. Like, I don't want to be that guy about <laughs> Bernie, because it's like Bernie would be the first one to say, like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't don't, you know, idolize me in that regard. Exactly. Exactly. Not me, us. Right. Right. Exactly. And that carries a lot of like weight and a lot of, you know, truth to it, because 
like you said, Trump has no fucking shame. He, we've known this for four years. No comedian has ever been able to be funny for the past four years, like making fun of him. Like it, it's just been uh, undoable. And um, you, they're really at uh, a lot of politicians. I think honestly, both Democrats and Republicans still think that there can be some like calm and decorum while he's in office. Civility, right? Civility. That's what, yeah. that's what the libs are obsessed about. Civility. Exactly. So like when Nancy Pelosi goes on and said like. I really hope the Republican Party can like recover from this or whatever she said. Like, we need a good Republican Party. It's like they've been doing fine. They don't like, you know, they've been doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And you're losing and you're getting the shit kicked out. Exactly. They don't care about being nice because you know what? They are strong. They are fine. They are a well-functioning party for what they want. So exactly. And when they have when they have political power, they actually exercise that power. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they govern. You know, right. And it just seems to me that Nancy Pelosi saying something like, the, you know, her comment was something like the Republican Party is now a cult. Mm. And, you know, like we need to bring the old, grand old party back again. And I'm like, well, wh wh which Republican Party are you talking about? The Republican Party of like George W. Bush who mm -hmm. started two illegal wars. You know, are you talking about Reagan? You know what I mean? Which was really the, the batshit crazy precursor to Donald Trump, just in terms of like, just the shenanigans and the, the complete depravity that went on in that administration and during his terms, you know? Right. So it's just, it's just like, I don't, I don't understand what new approach, right. The Democrats are, are developing or, or, I mean, I, there is no new approach really, right. It's still civility politics. It's all about the quorum and proceduralism. Yeah. While Mitch McConnell just like mops the floor with y'all asses, you know? Yeah. I mean, at this point, they're really, I'm using air quotes, the conservative party, because they want to go back to whatever, like you were saying, like they want to go back to some idea. And the conservatives have like the Republican Party has just become the real reactionary party in that regard. Like they've become a real reactionary force. And it's nothing new. I don't want to make this sound like, you know, this is unprecedented. No, you know, this has never been seen before. You know, I get sick of that kind of assessment that we've been also been hearing for the past four years because it, we're just numb to it. But Every once in a while, I'm still like shocked at what fucking happens, because now when we get into the talk of like the peaceful transfer of power, which might be challenged, I won't mm -hmm. say it won't happen. I don't I don't know what's going to happen, but it could be challenged very severely by Trump and um, through the courts. Right. Through the, through could, yeah, could be through the courts, could be another. Yeah. Gore Bush scenario. It, yeah, it's it's going to be crazy. Or it could be done by the fucking Proud Boys. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. Yep. Yeah, yep. it might not be on a mass scale. It, you might not see, like, you and me getting dragged out in the street by Proud Boys uh, and, like, you know, libs getting, you know, their lawns burned or something like that or harassed. But it'll it'll be, it could be something. It might be something. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's, like, when, when folks talk about, like, the threat of a non-peaceful transfer of power, I think that throwing in the right wing militia groups mm -hmm. and the armed individuals who like folks like the Oath Keepers as well, who are going to be serving as like poll watchers. I think that's what they think they're going to be doing. But again, these are going to be ghouls with bulletproof vests and like, you know, heavily weaponized men who are, are it seems to be more voter intimidation than anything. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And like, I think that even the concept of poll watchers, I always get kind of weirded out about because it could easily turn into that. And this now we're seeing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know. I know. I know people that have done it and they do it with the best of intentions and they don't intimidate people at the polls. But it's it's a slippery slope. So we'll um, 
I was, I, you know, the next few debates are going to be the ones that are the marker of the level of madness and what kind of madness could ensue from this. Like, this was fun. Like, this first debate was like, ah, you fucking rascal. Yeah, it, it was amusing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like watching two kids in, like, a schoolyard, you know what I mean? Like, just fighting each other. Right. And when I when I found out, man, I mean, there's that whole debate was just such a whirlwind. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I think it was like 90 minutes, but it felt like it was like half an hour to 45 minutes, right? Because just how insane it was. And when I learned, and I know that there are multiple presidential debates, but just based on the first one and how insane it was, and then I realized that, like, found out there are going to be two more of these shits after. Yeah. And I'm just like, dude, this is like dead ass. It's it's like the name of the podcast, right? This is dead ass the time of monsters, yo. Yeah. Right. And we're just seeing like some sort of like collapse or you know slow motion like car crash broadcast nationally live you know globally mm-hmm. for the whole entire world to see you know our uh our descent into barbarism and just the way i guess what some people call late stage capitalism the way that that shit is turning out yeah no i think i think that's right and it's it's like the fact that the best option that we have to fight up against this is like joe biden and is like you know i i i think that the best my favorite leftist and this is what the left does better than the liberals is like we don't really give a shit about a common ground because we know that lives are at stake, democracy is at stake, fascism is a possibility, yeah. death is a reality. Like this, like, you know, it can sound accelerationist, it can sound doom pill, black pill, whatever you want to call it, but like we understand the weight in which all of this is carried because we have to, we we are forced to know what capitalism is. We are we have to know what we're fighting up against. And capitalism is an unrelenting. it's it's evil it's pure evil so it's um to think that bernie could have done better is you know yeah absolutely because he would not have given a shit about like well we need to work with both sides of the aisle like bernie's not also not that big of a prick but he's not like that you know formally nice of a guy so he's willing to fight right exactly he's willing to fight which the democrats are not willing to do Mm -hmm. um yeah man i mean we'll we'll see what happens right but it, it does seem like I mean, leading up to Election Day and even after Election Day, especially with all these absentee ballots coming in, especially with just counting them and just, you know, like who actually won the election? This is something that might be a, a prolonged thing for maybe at least a couple of weeks. Yeah. If not like a month or two, you know. Yeah. The next interesting thing is going to be how boring or like it could be a total like surprise uh the pence and kamala debate like that'll be interesting like, oh god see. i forgot about that shit yeah. dude jesus fucking christ but now like we're all gonna turn into tulsi gabart that's what's gonna happen we're all gonna become prager you uh prager you automaton <laughs> well i mean not not if gravel institute has anything to say about it man Goddamn right yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah all right man now that we've cleared that up out the way let me like i guess formally introduce you Matt T, uh, we met on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? And um, I actually came on your podcast, one of the first podcasts I came on, which was Midwest Socialist, because you were based out of Chicago and you were also the co-chair of Southside Chicago TSA. So I brought you on today and this is going to be part of a, a mini series within the podcast itself, sort of catching people up on what is going on within DSA, particularly through talking to organizers in DSA in different chapters around the country, right? Because um, it's, it's sort of hard, even if you're a member, to figure out 
what are all these different chapters doing all across the country, right? It doesn't seem like there's much coordination, and that's understandable, but hopefully this little mini-series on DSA, which is the largest socialist organization in the country, um, hopefully this will be informative for people and also kind of inspire people to join their own chapter and see what kind of change they can make in their own communities. So um, we're trying to talk about that, and we're going to talk about Bread and Roses, because Bread and Roses has a pivotal role in left-wing politics in the city of Chicago. So uh, why don't you tell us what you do as uh, I, saw, I saw the eye roll a little bit right well, Let's not talk about Bread and Roses directly because yeah. I'm really I'm not a member and I'm really not that well versed. I've just met a lot of shitty people. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. So like, you know, uh, in reality, I got to organize with these people. Exactly. Like, I still got to work with these people. So it's like I can shit talk caucuses all day. Like yeah. I'll say caucuses, ca- you know, whatever, because yeah. I could be talking about CPN or something like that. But like, yeah, let's well, sorry. No, 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 but, no, no. And we're going to leave that in because I feel like. A lot of people want to talk about leftist infighting, Mm -hmm. but the entire history of the left and a strong leftist party, whatever part of the world or whatever historical time frame you're looking at, um, there are these struggles within the party, right? There isn't always a unified vision or a goal, right? So I think it's important to critique and analyze, you know, what we're doing, especially with an organization like DSA, which I am a member of card-carrying member, but um, a dues-paying member as well. But there, there, there are some things that need to be worked on and nobody has the answers, right? So this is just going to be more of sort of a discussion exploration, you know, within DSA. So uh, I'm not expecting you to talk any shit about any of these people or caucuses because you do have to work with them. But first, what is your role as co-chair and what plans do you have for Southside Chicago DSA as co-chair? What are you guys working on? Yeah, so this is the South Side branch of the city. Yeah, uh, I know. I think New York has like Lower Manhattan. Like those are like five or four different DSAs within New York. But the, yeah, these are branches. So there's like the North Side Red and Blue Line and the South Side branch. Um, the, the South Side of Chicago is predominantly known as like the lower income working class part of Chicago. More multiracial, overwhelmingly more multiracial, and. You know, it's where a lot of the, the the deindustrialization happened. Like when we talk about deindustrialization, a lot of it happened on the south side of Chicago. Uh, but it also has the history of the Black Panther Party. It also has a history, you know, of where a, a lot of this union organizing that Chicago is known for happened mm. all along the side. So what I wanted to do coming in and what I was like kind of reinvited to come in and voted in on was trying to break down those barriers between the north and south side to understand like, we have the Saul Linsky method of organizing that we have here in Chicago, which was made famous here because he was a University of Chicago guy, which is on the South Side as well. Uh, if, if these individual groups that organize and organizing on a neighborhood level and like small, like if, if you could have like, you know, 3000 small groups within the city, then that's like successful organizing. But that just doesn't work. That's just not helpful. That is such a weak like it's a lot more powerful to have 3000 people working together than like 20 people working together, but like all over the city like that, just we, we to try and create a united, I don't want to say united front, mm-hmm. wanna, but like a solidarity building and really rooted in socialism, mm-hmm. like a socialist counter mm-hmm. to this, to this city machine and democratic machine that we have here. That that's what I'm really interested in. Yeah. So uh, there was a really great event that was hosted by DSA emerge and red star San Francisco, where it was the revolutionary Marxist kind of like a zoom call. And they were talking about, what does revolutionary Marxism look like under, in the DSA and things like that? And they had a really good point in there where they said a lot of these cities where the protests have been happening are predominantly 
you know, they're de they're democratic cities. They have democratic mayors. They have democratic offices. All this stuff. So voting for a lesser of the two evils isn't even an option here. Mm. There's no other option. These are like singular party cities. So what what does politics? What does electing what or electoralism look like? And what other option do we have? And I think socialism is the only other option that we can offer people that isn't like. We're not going to say the Republicans because they clearly don't want the Republicans. Like clearly they've been like run out of these cities as a serious alternative and mass alternative. Mm -hmm. And if people are still getting fucked over by these issues and still getting fucked over by the government, socialism is the only hope we have. So let me so let me ask you a question then um, to follow up on that with Chicago specifically in its city council. Uh, how many do you know? How many exactly DSA members sit on the Chicago City Council? What's the makeup like? Six DSA. I don't I think they're all members. Definitely they were all endorsed by DSA and they might I think they're all members. But um yeah, six on the city council here right now. Okay. So you were talking a minute ago about electoralism and the utility of that mm -hmm. and its strategy of electoralism within DSA. In, in Chicago, if you can speak a little bit about Chicago left-wing politics, what sort of relationship I guess does DSA have with the city council with having DSA members or members endorsed by DSA sitting on the city council. And how is DSA able to Chicago, uh, specifically DSA, how is that organization able to push some of the more left wing socialist, explicitly socialist policy goals or initiatives while having that sort of coalition or left wing block on the city council? Yeah. So uh, those are really great questions. The elected officials have been really good at putting their own legacy their own ele electability their own like fucking reputations on the line mm. constantly for pushing for democratizing comment or you know democratizing utilities here um not standing with police during a protest like marching with the people during these high like these really tense protests that we had this past summer and, and not just for a photo shoot. no no that they're like it's very clear where, like, you know, you will see a million politicians, you know, standing on a picket line or something like that. But this was like, oh, shit, you're you're turning your back to the police and not even talking to them or mm. being like, don't bother these people or something like that. So they've been putting the, their careers on the line and things like that. And I know that a lot of, you know, socialists will be like, who gives a shit about a politician's career? It's still their career. It's not really our lives all the time. Uh, coupled with that, which is hopeful and good, is that the reformist measures that have been pushed through on the city council, defunding the police, creating like a crisis center call line. So as an alternative to calling 911, other other things like democratizing ComEd. So th these things like it's actual that work, that electoral, what you elect people for. Mm -hmm. This is why we elected you. This is why you're a DSA member. This is why you have socialist politics. Now you just happen to be, thankfully, or, you know, in an elected position. So you have that place to do it. So, yeah, this is why you have socialist politics. And now you are in a position to use that influence, use that power, have like a place to utilize your socialist politics. And you also have a socialist movement behind you that is really happy to see you in office. So, yeah, yeah one, one thing that I that I always worry about is when DSA endorses a candidate, Bernie, for example, first presidential candidate, I believe that they've endorsed um, or whether it's a city council member. Um, I and this is not particularly relegated to just DSA, but just more so left wing organizing in general is holding these people accountable. Mm -hmm. Right. After you've elected them and after they take the seat. Can you speak on or do you know, like what what measures does Chicago DSA? What measures do they take 
um, in order to hold these folks accountable who they've endorsed. As far as like immediate, like, you know, calling up an office or like having meetings with them or, you know, strategizing, I don't know if that happens. I am not a part of that. I don't know what their goals are, like pushing candidates to the left once they're in office um, or making sure they stay on the left, rather, like making sure that they follow through on their promises. But I think that those they reassess and they have to like reanalyze their endorsement again in the next election cycle. So they have to say like, well, let's look back. And like, that's what I would do. That's, that's, that's just my own theory. That's just what I would say. Um, but you know, this is the point of, I, I think that, you know, a communist is not really going to run for office anytime soon. Like that's just not an open hammer and sickle, you know, ML is going to run for office anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, they should, they should, I think that'd be really great. Maybe in a couple of years, right? Yeah. Soon. Yeah. So the best communists can really hope for and socialists and leftists can really hope for is an explicit reformist candidate. I think that having them run for office is okay, but then it still falls on the organization, the individual, the leftist org. That's who you can push left more than a liberal. You can't push a liberal that far to the left. You can push a reformist to the left, but you can't push a liberal to the left. Let's talk about that a little bit, man. Um, Kind of explore that because we're talking about electoralism and its usefulness and Using Chicago as sort of an example of using reforms to actually affect people's lives materially, right? right? I, don't, I don't know how much better to say that, but a lot of people like to fall on, you know, either you're an evolutionary, you know, socialist or a revolutionary socialist. But again, like you're kind of saying, like, it doesn't matter whether you're an anarchist or a communist, right? The best that we can hope for in the United States, within its political system, within its constrained bound of like imagination, right? The best we can hope for are reforms. But let's talk a little bit about reforms for reform's sake versus reforms that actually attempt to shift the balance in power, right? So that they can be built upon. Right. Um, I'm sure, I think Rosa Luxemburg has um has has talked about this, but could you speak a little and you could even throw in a little bit of theory for people, you know, people especially who are not familiar with these ideas, can you kind of break it down for them why reformism isn't necessarily a bad thing, but reform for reform's sake is not what we need on the left right now? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And that's like it's a it's a fine line to talk about without sounding super dense. So like I am not a reformist person. I don't want to see American capitalism helped. I don't want to see American imperialism helped. I don't want to see it survive. I want it to be destroyed. Dead ass, dead ass. And in the quick, in like the best way possible, right? Like I, I am not a proponent for that. Um, but I also understand that day to day people are suffering like shit, and they're like the, the that like that. My wildest fantasies are not going to happen overnight, and not even fantasies. Like what examples from other countries are not going to happen overnight. Um, but there is something to be said about individual like institutions. Defunding is a reformist position. Defunding is a reform, uh, a platform to run on. Yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily like, we're not asking even for abolishing. Right. I mean, people, we are asking to abolish the police as well as ICE, Mm -hmm. but yeah, defunding is reforming. Yeah, exactly. So the, this is where it gets tricky because that kind of electoralism, that kind of work, even Marx talks about that with his minimum and maximum programs, which as a side note, like Engels thought was one of the most brilliant things Marx ever wrote because it was short and to the point. And Marx was challenged on it by other communists at the time, but that that work has to be done in conjunction with revolutionary work. The party has to be 
the institution in which you're building this working class power, you have to be able to do on the ground, immediate day-to-day work with people, but you also have to have revolutionary power within the institution that you're building working class power with. You, you have to, it, it makes the job of the party twice as hard. And I think, I wonder if that's just an American political thing to think that, no, we're only interested in getting elected and getting bills passed and blah, blah, blah. Like, that is so not going to be how the DSA will survive in the future if it thinks that that's all it can do um, or that it thinks that it can do one without focusing the other without having like a real consensus on one or the other. So having a re- revolutionary politic and having revolutionary education being built, class consciousness being built, it, it, like the education can happen through the electoralism. The, you know, you can you how easy is it to say like, this is all I want to do for you. This is what the government should be doing for you. This is what you're fucking owed. And I can't even win. And I want to make sure this helps you. Look at how shitty the state is. There you go. Like that is such a quick and easy way of saying like, this is what can happen. This is your potential. You don't even know what this country can be other than what it is. And I owe it to you. And we owe it to ourselves to do this for us and help, help everybody. So um, and I don't think that's idealistic, but that's, you know, so, so just, just to kind of underscore, right. Or to clarify, mm-hmm. um, it's that it's not that reforms are bad, um, in and of themselves, they're bad because I I've said this before. People hear me say this, um, reforms tend to institutionalize themselves. Exactly. Um, where the end goal is not much more imaginative, right? Um, th- there isn't a larger project behind these reforms, but what you're saying is that, Reforms that exist in parallel with revolutionary politics, right, are what will allow these reforms to be um, actualized into something more, right? Exactly. And I I think one thing that I always go back to is like a reform without any revolution is it it has the danger of just being a fucking coup. Like it's, it's just a transfer of power. It's not a real change in anything. It's not a real like it's not the act of dialectic in, in earnest. And it, uh, it has that potential of being stagnant, like everything that you were just saying. So it, it parties, institutions, you know, whatever working class groups are coming together, they have to be better about that. They have to be real about that. And the Republicans are really good about that. Yes, they are. You know, they'll say elect, run, you know, run, run, run. Uh, by the way, we're going to buy up TV stations. We're going to like, infiltrate all these you know, something as as minute as uh school boards we're, we're gonna well they have a they have a multi-pronged approach right? exactly exactly and we can we can blame that on the money they have we can blame mm. but we're starting to grow so we can't blame it on that as much anymore like exactly. we can't exactly you know there we, we we can't just keep saying like well we're poor it's like yeah we are but we have other options we have other channels to work through we just have to bust our asses to do it like AOC said, man, um, when she was running um, to, you know, replace Joe Crowley, they've got money, but we've got people. Right. Right. Um, right. So so on, on this, let's let's kind of continue on this tip, man, and turn to bread and roses, because we're speaking about having a revolutionary program and bread and roses. I, I guess the best way to describe them is a praxis oriented revolutionary marxist caucus of dsa right i think is that fair to say um from what i have seen and i can sympathize with this i think they're leftists that 
uh, and a lot of DSA members too, that got power and it's very delicate. It's very like sensitive to have open socialists elected. So you want to be careful with that. So, you know, to say you're one or the other is a dangerous game to play. So to call them revolutionaries and I think like softening the terms with a lot of their more reformist positions is like a protection thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Let me let me read from their website. These, this is the first sentence when you go to their website. Bread and Roses is a national caucus of Marxist organizers in the Democratic Socialists of America committed to helping build an effective DSA rooted in the multiracial working class. Now, could you could you talk a little bit about Bread and Roses as much as you're comfortable talking about? Because I understand that you have to work with these people. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, we I think the project that you and I are sort of embarking on, right, generally speaking, and within this conversation is to be critical because I, I, I love DSA, man. You know, I have my qualms with it. But of course, I want it to succeed as a socialist organization within the United States and actually um, achieve some political power. Right. So, so can you talk about Bread and Roses, the Bread and Roses Caucus and its role in pushing or even transforming, right, if I want to be, be optimistic about it, um, Chicago politics? Yeah, I mean, they, they've worked their fucking asses off to build this coalition within the chapter abroad, within the city. Um, you know, I'm a newer member, so I, I'm coming into this really green, but they have a lot of social capital to build upon. And um, the, does that transfer always to political capital? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how easily that happens. But, um, you know, the, the criticisms are the criticisms everywhere. You know, class reductionist inability to kind of understand racial politics, identity politics in a meaningful way. Like, you know, I'm more interested in creating an intersectional proletarian movement than just like working class, you know, uh, like, like they have to, they, you have to hold all of these balls in the air. And that's really fucking hard. But if you're not willing to, then you're you're going to be short lived. It's just not going to work. And um, I hope that answers your question. I hope that. that no, helps. no, no, it does, man. And I think that um, something to commend mm -hmm. Red and Roses for, and I, I don't know much about them at all, but just even when you're on your web, their website and you go to the section where it says where we stand, right? And just some of the things that they kind of outline or highlight, you know, obviously being for socialism, um, you know, obviously not just the centrality of class struggle is it's what they call them on the website or some people might think the primacy of class struggle but also the dialectical nature of race and class um i've talked about this a lot uh independent political action you know a rank and file strategy internationalism which is very important you know democracy not horizontalism right i, I think that especially for those of us that remember occupy Right. And as influential as that movement was in terms of radicalizing um, some of us now who went on to, you know, organize with the Bernie campaign and join TSA, having an, a horizontal structure does not seem conducive to attaining, maintaining political power. Right. People need to be held accountable. Right. Right. For certain things. So, yeah, I, I think that that does that does answer my question. And also these things are still in play. Yeah. Right. Like we no one can have definitive conclusions about the importance of red and roses because it's, it's something that's still currently happening right and i think we see you know this is caucus politics within the dsa that like collective power network is still like working towards them i'm even less familiar with but the, this these seem to be where the fights happen is in these caucus you know agro politic shit and caucuses are really good at that because i think you and i have talked about this before it's like 
I always think of socialists as being, you know, the weird kids at, at, in the lunchroom at the table. You know, yeah. yeah. All, you know, <laughs> well, now we're divvying up the table into caucuses even more. And it's just like, are you just trying to be the bullies who you couldn't like exactly. crack with? Exactly. Like, come on. What? I get it. infighting. I get it. And it's good towards like if, if Lenin didn't have Kautsky, like, would he be Lenin? Would yeah. he be as good? Like you need someone, I guess, sometimes to kind of be like challenge your thinking. In that we way. need a canary in the coal mine, right? But yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's dialectical, right? It's like conflict is good. Um, but at the same time, um, we are trying to build a broad coalition. Right. But I think that down to the brass tacks of it, it, it's like it is this idea of social democracy. I mean, it, to, to get go from a very like political philosophical standpoint, it is this notion of a lot of people in Chicago do think that, you know, social democracy will be the road to whatever or it is the goal or it is the, you mm-hmm. know, to communism or something like that. Like it, this will be the thing that we can highest hope for. This is our highest hope is that. And um it gets tricky because then at the same time, you know, these other communities, they don't give a shit about Marxism or they, they don't give a shit about communism or they hate it because they know, you know, Latin American communities like they, they hear the boogeyman story of Castro yeah. and Chavez and all this stuff. Exactly. So it's a delicate road for like a communist to walk, to be like, I'm not going to, you know, like I said, I'll never walk into a room with a hammer and sickle on my arm or, you know, something like that. But like, if I can talk about creating intersectionality and creating class consciousness without, you know, being like, all right, now you're a Marxist. Now you are a communist. Sign this paper right now and tell me you're going to be like, you know, somebody, a a great comrade said the other day, and like, it's, it has to be more at the center of what we do is like, you have to be comfortable planting the seed and walking away. You know, because not everything's going to plant and that's fine. Then we'll have a better vanguard for the people who do fall through. That's fine. That's a really great quote, man. And um, it, it reminds me of something that people have heard me say and I'll keep saying it is um, I think I've just said it a couple minutes ago is meeting people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I think that is instrumental um, for our socialist project. Right. So so let me ask you, I can't I can't have a comrade on from Chicago and not ask about um, one of the actual uh, people powered victories in Chicago, which was the Chicago's Teachers Union and um, the efforts that they've been making, um, striking and other things to achieve some modicum of integrity, right? Mm-hmm. As teachers to, to achieve the resources, yeah. right? That they need to continue being teachers, not for their own livelihoods, um, but also for just, you know, the betterment of their students. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, that's a, I, I like that you put it that way. And I think that, you know, at the heart of everything that we do is that we're trying to enact and r- restore and protect dignity for people. And like, that's what humanism is. And also, you know, I'm a communist because I want to help protect dignity. I want to give people dignity. I want to give working class people fucking respect and protecting that at, at every at every corner is is core of what I really believe. And uh, the teachers union recognized that the teachers union saw that if they went on strike or the position that they were in, it was for janitors. It was for uh, students. It was for parents. It was for, um, you know, they they held so much in their in in their strike that ran throughout the entire city i mean they were like a network throughout the entire city of like the pulse of it and making sure that it like ran effectively so them going on strike and having looper back around to kenzo a little bit because he was on that bargaining team i believe um i think that's what they called it but um having that central to a lot of what they were doing and that's that strike really showing that 
if we took care of the people who were working, we took care of the people who were, you know, subjected to some of, and it, it, the students are the ones who are the most subjected to whatever the city will do because they don't have a union, you know, like students can't go on strike or they can walk out, but like, it's a lot harder to do that. Um, the, the teachers are, are just that, that, uh, that safety net and that, that, so that them doing that was incredible. And they're, they're on to better, you know, they're on to doing great things. And same with SEIU here as well. And the, uh, Illinois Nurses Association, they went on strike a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago now. But yeah, they they won their strikes as well. So it's 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 good to see. And they're getting good contracts. And like I said, this is a union town exactly. still. Like this is exactly you know, I, I think that um I grew up in the burbs, so you you kind of you hear about it as like folk war still, but it then you move to the city or you take a part in one event and you're just like, Holy shit, this is this is happening more and more and it's it's real. So yeah, good for them. Yeah, and I think I think that it, it's important. Or because you'll see this on the right, but I think you'll even see this with liberals too. You know, the the petty bourgeois, or some right. people will call them the professional managerial class, right? Sure. Um, these people who will and conservatives do that a lot that will malign um teachers unions. Like I've yeah. heard people yeah. say that, like, well, the teachers union is the problem, while you know they have nothing to say about police unions, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that. What the teachers union in Chicago and all these actually teacher strikes across the country, yeah, right, in red states um, that we've been seeing in the past couple of years, right? I think that their effectiveness in communicating why it was important to secure um, certain benefits, um, not only for themselves, but their students, um, I think that was communicated so well and done so effectively because it allowed students and their families to give critical support um to teachers unions right no and i i think i think you're right a a lot of union members teachers union members even these most like progressive american unions they don't like unions they they are reactionaries they are like a lot of them can still be you know like you go to a strike and sometimes you'll see union members still like respect the cops and like yes. try to talk to cops yeah. and things like that. You don't understand like the cops will always take the side of the boss or something like, you know, these motherfuckers like literally like not to cut you off, but like besides being, uh, being slave catchers, right. Yeah. Um, slave patrols, like police law enforcement is descended mm-hmm. from union busters in the North. Mm-hmm. So as special bodies of armed men, which is what the police are, their role in, you know, our in these in this class relation, right, is to protect private property, right, right, to to frustrate any effort at all of workers, organized workers demanding, right, change, right. And I think one of the biggest frustrations that communists, leftists, you know, more revolutionary minded people have, MLs or whatever, is that unions under capitalism are built to give the worker the best deal they can get under capitalism. They're built to protect them. And the workers want them because they know how much capitalism can ravage them and like rip them the fuck apart. So they need a union and they utilize that power so they can get a good deal. But they don't necessarily want to piss off the capitalist powers that much to like fuck up their deal. Because that is also a lot to ask of people that, like I was just saying earlier, if they don't give a shit about anti-capitalist work, if they don't give a shit about socialism, if they don't give a shit about you know anarchism, leftism, whatever, that is a lot to tell them. Like, hey, you know, you're, I know you're a teacher or you're a janitor or whatever. 
but you're married to a cop. Mm. Don't you see that they're the fucking enemy? <laughs> like, don't you see that your husband, the CEO, is actually the devil or exactly. something as as like small as that? So it it becomes difficult for a lot of unions to not want to do that work or they're corrupt. Like, you know, the Teamsters have notoriously been for a long time uh, and other unions like that have been for a long time where they don't have a rank and file strategy that it's so much more easy to facilitate corruption. So it, it requires a lot of patience from communists and leftists that are maybe not like union focused or care, give a shit about unions or like, fuck it. Um, it's what Lenin wrote about too. You know, it's like, you have to work with reaction, you know, mm-hmm. like you can't be that stupid to not work with reactionary unions. You just have to be fucking patient. You have to be. And you know, like you have to understand the politics in which you're going into and we can't stop being political in that regard. And that means like finessing that means, you know, sensitive. I, I, I don't even mean to like pull run over on people, but you have to be sensitive to these issues or they're going to laugh you out of the fucking room or worse, just kick you out. Exactly. So I like, it comes back down to you have to understand why people would join a union in the first place. It's because they're getting good living fucking wages. It's because they're able to support themselves off of these jobs that are incredibly difficult to do. And they need this like line of defense against what capitalism can do to them. And now the leftist has to come in and say, well, what if capitalism didn't exist at all? And this was just like the normal. <laughs> this was just a given and you can keep your unions after the revolution as well. We're happy yeah, to do yeah, that. You yeah. know, like a dictatorship of the proletariat, right? Yes. Yeah, like fucking God. <laughs> Hell yeah. I love communism. I love it. <laughs> that should be the name of this episode. I love communism. So to wrap up, man, let me let me ask you then. I'm going to turn back then to um, DSA and your work as the co-chair again of Southside Chicago DSA. So to ask you then, Matt, to, to kind of wrap it up. What is your strategy for or goal, I should say, strategies and goals, right, as co-chair of Southside Chicago DSA? I think it goes back to what I was like, you know, kind of alluding to this whole episode is that trying to be and strategy is inherently built in that it's understanding how to communicate with people, you know, class consciousness and how to like help build class consciousness. I, I can't how am I going to get mad at someone who risked their entire life to run across the border and make it to Chicago to like provide a life for their family? Am I going to like call and they, they make it to be like a managerial class or they, you know, they become a petit bourgeois. Like, how am I going to fucking tell them like, you know, you don't get it, you're wrong or something like that. Um, so having that ability to keep theory in it and keep the education in it, and like we were saying earlier, plant the seed and walk away and understanding how to, where and how to plant the seed. Um, that is really what I'm interested in. Goals, larger goals. I, I think we should be running people for mayor, like pretty consistently. I think that, you know, and it, it, not just for selfish, like educational, you know, DSA education, you know, come join DSA goals. But if to be like a serious thing that can counter the deep, deep legacy of what machine politics can do in this country, not replace a machine for a machine, not replace, you know, that shitty centralism, really bad centralism, because it's capitalist centralism. It's it's liberal mm-hmm. centralism, mm-hmm. democratic central, like democratic mm-hmm. party centralism. Not democratic centralism, right? No, no. <laughs> that's a whole other episode. It's all, yeah, but, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, but democratic party machine politics. So stopping and giving an alternative to the Democratic Party machine mm. in this city is still something that I think we have to be focused on. And it yeah. cannot be yeah. while the elections and the wards are great and they're doing great work and they're they're impressive as shit. 
and there's something to be learned from and studied from and worked with, uh, it just, it has to keep getting bigger. It just, it has yeah, to, yeah, yeah. but we have to be comfortable with the conversations of, okay, how do we get bigger? We have, we, we just have to be. And, um, I think that the DSA is in, an, is in a good position to, especially in Chicago, to, to do that and to build that. And, you know, tomorrow there's a mutual aid day in the back of the yards neighborhood here that we're going to be just like giving out sanitary items and just things like that. But we're also going to be like handing out literature as well. And I don't, I, mutual aid is interesting because I don't really give a shit if someone shows up to my meeting. Like I'm just more interested in helping poor people. That's fine. I don't, they deserve it more than anybody else. But if I can also say like, Shouldn't the government be doing this to you? Shouldn't you have the dignity of democracy to say uh, our neighborhoods demand this? There you go. I just made another Soviet. I just made another like Bolshevik. That's where the political education starts, man. Mm -hmm. So to close out, Matt, you also have a podcast. So talk a little bit about um, y'all's podcast, Midwest Socialist, then, and you know what that project is about or intends to do. Yeah. So uh, I, I the podcast was going on before me for a while, and it, it kind of hit a lull. But then I wanted to start it back up again. It's a long story behind all that, but I wanted to start it back up again. And my initial focus, I think it's going to change over time and it's shifting, but my initial focus was to create a podcast where we can put like a real human face to leftist politics and, and organizing and things like that. Um, you and I have talked about this before. And one thing that I find really interesting is that um, this is why I love talking to comrades of color because they have the most interesting paths to learning about communism, learning about anarchism. It's not something that is encouraged within communities of color or uh, even an option you know we don't or, or even that not to cut you off but even that history mm -hmm. of black and brown radicalism right. right explicitly like socialism or communism is um not readily accessible no. to like baby lefties right of color i mean like you have to work even in chicago we're, we're okay we're better at it but you still have to work really hard to know who fred hampton is holy shit like the greatest communist the, the united states has ever seen and the house where he was shot or the location where he was shot is like five minutes from my house right now so you wouldn't even know it like it's insane so um bringing that humanism understanding like how the fuck did you find this because i know that's an interesting story right away like i know that there everybody has an interesting story because of how difficult it is to find leftism that it's going to make for an interesting conversation and comrades of color are in an interesting place to have those conversations. But, and it, it, it is also a good place because I think that socialists should always remember the humanity in which they are working with and the empathy in which they are functioning on. Uh, you and I have talked about this before that I think that one thing that socialists and, and it, it happens a lot with people of color too, with BIPOC citizens and everyone is that you are constantly told you are the antithesis of what this country is supposed to be. You are not, what this country had set out to be um black brown asian indigenous you are the counter to this american identity um and now bring in communism bring in anarchism bring in socialism doubly you know it, it, doubly so for those people and and to have that humanity taken away from you is it, it beats you down in another way that that capitalism is really you know perfected and good at doing so to have that heart at the central of all those conversations, have that heart in the central to your organizing and understand your own humanity helps you be a better empathetic organizer and empathizing revolutionary that you have to be. And see, you're wearing your Che shirt. Yes, I am. <laughs> and it's like, you know, that great Che quote where he talks about, you know, what is the most important trait that a revolutionary can have? And Che said, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, it's love. Love. And I, I talk, I, you, again, I'm going to say this a bunch of times because we talk all the time, but you, have, you and I have talked about this before. It's that we're dealing in radical humanism here. We're dealing in really radical humanism. And that 
requires at its core a deep rooted love and you know we become com- you know we're communists because we don't want anybody to to fuck up with that love to fuck to fuck with it so yeah exactly to close to close it out man with a quote from the late michael brooks rest in peace to the comrade mm-hmm. be kind to people ruthless to institutions mm-hmm. right i think i think that's a really good quote to live by matt t comrade brother man my brother from another mother man it was <laughs> I love you, dude. It was really, really nice to like get you on the pod and talk to you. And I think that um, as part of, again, this mini series exploring the politics of PSA and letting people know what chapters around the country are doing, um, I think this is really conducive to that. And, and um, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll get a couple of uh, Chicagoans that uh, want to join uh, Chicago DSA, even uh, Southside Chicago DSA. So one more time, brother, plug anything that you've got. You can plug the podcast, you can plug your Twitter, um, whatever you want people to know about you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Join the DSA, you know, have these arguments, have these discussions. Ultimately, the caucuses are good. Ultimately, these arguments are good. They should, we should be utilizing them for good. Um, City politics, whatever fucking fight, understand how you're being screwed over and, and join and develop your political consciousness, your class consciousness, join this leftist organization, join a leftist organization, join the DSA um, listen to the Midwest Socialist podcast, and my Twitter is FOIA for last name, F O I A for last name. Hell yeah, man. Appreciate you, brother. Uh, honor of my life, as Comrade Tom likes to say. Honor of my life. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah.